This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for February 14, 2020. A child spends their parents' money on a game after adding their fingerprints to Touch ID. A locker kiosk proves to have lackluster security. And we take a dive into blockchain technology, including cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. This week, we're going to talk about cryptocurrency. You may have heard about Bitcoin and blockchain, and you're wondering what all this is about. Um, this week, we have a guest, Victor Regretta Jr., who is a journalist and who is our producer and editor, um, who's also a big fan of cryptocurrency. Victor, thanks for joining us. Hey, glad to be here. Um, and we have Josh, as usual. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing well. Thanks, Kirk. How are things over there in the UK? Windy. We've had some windy storms. We've had the last weekend, we had winds in excess of 60 miles an hour. Wow. Um, not what we usually get, uh, and I'm not anywhere near the coast. So, Josh, I know you've got some young kids, and you've got kids who use iPhones and iPads and play games. Um, we found an interesting story this week on iMore. Eight-year-old spends $1,875 on Roblox in-app purchases by adding her fingerprint to Touch ID. I don't know what Roblox is. I assume it's some sort of game, maybe like Minecraft? <laughs> yeah, kind of like that, Roblox, yeah. Roblox. Uh, yeah. Okay. The article says a child in Wales has managed to rack up 1,450 pounds in credit card debt after buying in-app purchases in the Roblox game. But her parents say that she isn't to blame. Now, what's interesting is that this kid was able to add her own fingerprint to Touch ID so she didn't have to ask her parents. Yeah, right. That's that's sort of a weird thing. And, and when I read that, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Okay, this device was not set up properly by the parents, if the kid is able to add her own fingerprint to Touch ID, that means that she knows the PIN for the device. Presumably there's a PIN and not a complicated password. And then presumably they did set up screen time and, and some parental restrictions. But if they did, they probably used the same PIN. Uh, in any case, clearly this device was not set up in, a, in such a way that a kid you know, couldn't get into things that they probably shouldn't be able allowed to do. If you don't want your kid doing in-app purchases, there are actually really fairly simple ways that you can set this up. And um, they didn't do that, clearly. Okay, there's a couple of things to understand. First of all, would you give your kid the password to the user account for your Mac? You no. wouldn't do that, would you? No. Of course not. A PIN to an iPhone or an iPad is pretty much the same as an admin user password. And that allows the person to change any settings at all. So let's say you've set up screen time, parental controls, restrictions, and all that. If the kid has the PIN, then they can go and change all those settings. Now I can understand the mother was busy and she figured, okay, here, the PIN is one, two, three, four, five, six. And that way you don't have to ask me every time you want to use my iPhone. Well, you know what? You just shouldn't let your kid use your iPhone, period. Um, or if you have an iPad, 
Maybe don't allow the iPad to do anything. Block it. Don't even put your email account in it. Um, I've been arguing for years that Apple needs to have multiple user accounts on iPads and perhaps iPhones. Um, at a minimum, the way Netflix does. You know, you can set up a different profile for each person and you have a separate kid's profile. Right. Yeah. And they do actually, for uh, education, there is something similar to that, um, but it's not really generally available for everyday consumers to use. One thing I, I should also point out, be, because maybe, you know, you have a situation where you are handing your device to a child. Um, if, in those kind of scenarios, what you can do to avoid the sort of like in-app purchasing behavior from happening without your knowledge, uh, you can turn off the in-app purchase functionality in settings. And I, I just leave it off all the time because I don't ever want to be using an app and then accidentally touch something and make an in-app purchase without intending to. So I just leave that off for myself anyway. And I definitely recommend to parents, if you ever hand your device to a kid to let them play a game, you know, for even if it's for a few minutes at a time, I definitely recommend turning off in-app purchases just to make sure that something doesn't accidentally get purchased. You were telling me before the show that you have a device set up for your kids where they have Touch ID so they can use it, but you've locked down other features, right? Right. Yeah, the way that we have it set up um, they don't know the password, and we do have a pa proper password, not just a little pin. Um, but you they would, don't... Josh, wouldn't you? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but they they don't know the password to get into the device, but they do have their fingerprints enrolled in Touch ID, so uh, so they can unlock it and they can get into the things that we have, you know, parental controls allowing, um, and they cannot get into settings like the ones that you would need to get into in order to turn on or, you know, to enroll uh, more fingerprints into Touch ID for one thing. Um, this article says that the child added her fingerprint to Touch ID, and that's how the child was able to make in-app purchases. Well, that shouldn't And be that's why I think the child must have had the pin. The mother must have given the pin to the daughter. Exactly. And that, and the daughter's eight years old. I mean, eight years old in computer years, this is like a, an adult now. So the, the kid certainly knows how to do things that even the mother probably doesn't know how to do. Well, and there's a setting that is, uh, I believe, on by default. You were looking at this before we were recording, Kirk, um, that's, that allows you to use Touch ID as the method for approving in-app purchases. And so, so there's, there's multiple things that are wrong here. And, and honestly, some of it is on Apple for making some of these things a default for convenience sake, right? But um, in-app purchases obviously was on. And uh, it, it was obviously set up so that Touch ID could be used for making in-app purchases. Well, perhaps the kid toggled that setting even if it was off, because if well, the kid had the passcode, then they could do everything. Victor, uh, you've got kids that are a bit older than this, right? I do, yeah. They've played Roblox, though. And, and, and they've actually made, uh, we made a deal when they were, let's say 14, 15, where I said, if you make a purchase, just let me know. So it doesn't hit the account and, you know, this account might not have funds in it or whatever. 
So just let me know what you're going to. And so for the most part, that system has worked out pretty well. But my kids are very conscientious also. And we do yeah. family sharing, which I find is extremely helpful, you know, especially when they're younger. So a lot of my purchases they've been able to use. That's how they got started using 1Password and, and great stuff like that. So, And with family sharing, don't you have to approve purchases? Mm, I've never had to do that on my end. But Josh, I think you can set that up. I think it's a possible setting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I haven't used family sharing. It's so stupid. I don't know why I haven't set up family sharing when we've got kids with using devices and all that. But um, yeah, at some point I need to set that up because uh, I know there are some really useful features in family sharing that that especially in this kind of situation would be super helpful. One thing I noticed in the article is that this kid spent all this money over a three-day period. Now, it seems to me there should be some sort of speed limit in purchasing that it should notice that this isn't normal behavior. The same way your credit card is going to detect fraud when you start spending, when someone starts spending more money than usual or when they're in a different location. And that's on Apple, that if they were able to make in-app purchases that range from $1 to $20 over three days, at some point, Apple should have said, hey, whoa, this isn't normal. The, the, the differentiation is that, you know, you may have somebody who on a regular basis makes in-app purchases, and then you may have somebody who normally never makes in-app purchases. And then for there to be a high bill all of a sudden, that's unusual behavior. And that's exactly the kind of thing like you're talking about that credit card companies look for. So Apple should be doing something like that too. It's not like this is the first time this kind of story has ever come up. I mean, this yeah. has happened multiple times over the years. Um, yep. And so, yeah, come on, Apple. We if, if, it's, if it's hitting the news as often as it is, then it's happening in real life way more often than we're hearing about. Speaking of hitting the news, I've never had a problem with a keyboard on an Apple laptop, but lots of people I know have. Um, someone in his Oscar acceptance speech mentioned that Apple needs to improve the keyboards. Um, that's not really good publicity for the company. Ouch. Anyway, something else came up on Twitter that was kind of interesting. Let's go through this really quickly because it's actually complicated. Uh, someone was in a city and they had lockers that you would pay to access to leave your stuff, six bucks each time. And it turned out that he put his stuff in and it got locked and he didn't get an option to set a pin to get back in. But he figured out a way by touching certain things on the screen that he found the admin menu and the admin pin, which was one, two, three, four. I've never seen this kind of locker, and, and Victor and Josh, you were both saying before the show you have seen them. Uh, this, this is kind of worrisome, this sort of electronic thing that eats all your stuff and then the door is closed and you have no recourse. Yeah, we'll link to the – this was not really in an article. It was just sort of a, a – Twitter thread where somebody is going through what happened to them. Um, but yeah, some interesting things happened. Essentially, yeah, it starts out with them accidentally locking their bag in the wrong one, the one that they didn't pay for. So, and then there was no number to call or, you know, to ask for assistance. So they just started poking around all over the screen and found out there were some hidden areas on the screen that would get you into, um, you know, an administrator area. And then the password was one, two, three, four. Ugh. 
And then, you know, <laughs> they were able to to unlock the, you know, really any one that they wanted to, not just that the one that they had accidentally locked their things in. Um, and then they messed around with it a little bit more and they found out, oh, they could get to the Windows desktop. Apparently this thing was running on Windows. That's fun. So just the, the reason that we thought this is worth sharing, because, you know, we, we talk about these things from time to time and just be aware if you're ever using one of these public kiosks, you know, to lock away your stuff, um, be aware that there's a possibility that maybe it's not set up as securely as it could be. Uh, in this case, if they had just bothered to put in a pin other than one, two, three, four, then that might have been sufficient to prevent somebody from breaking in. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about crypto and cryptocurrency. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST19 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, before we get into cryptocurrency, there's a fascinating article that came out a couple of days ago in the Washington Post. Uh, the title is The Intelligence Coup of the Century. It's a very, very long article, but it reads like a spy novel. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs from the beginning. For more than half a century, governments all over the world trusted a single company to keep the communications of their spies, soldiers, and diplomats secret. The company, Crypto AG, got its first break with a contract to build code-making machines for U.S. troops during World War II. The Swiss firm made millions of dollars selling equipment to more than 120 countries well into the 21st century. Its clients included Iran, military juntas in Latin America, nuclear rivals India and Pakistan, and even the Vatican. But none of its customers ever knew that Crypto AG was secretly owned by the CIA in a highly classified partnership with West German intelligence. When this dropped the other morning, I just read through this whole article. It takes about 15 minutes to read. This is just a fascinating story. Essentially, this company existed, and then the CIA figured, well, maybe we'll get involved. And then it's for decades, they were selling this stuff. And they only stopped a couple of years ago because... Well, end-to-end -end encryption or encrypted messages, as we've discussed many times, are now available essentially for free. So no one needs to pay for this anymore. 
Yeah, exactly. You've got uh, tools like Signal, for example, is is an app that you can use to securely message people. Um, honestly, even WhatsApp uses the Signal protocol. Uh, not that I necessarily recommend WhatsApp. We've we've talked about them a couple of times with some of the snafus that they've had, but. Uh, but you know, even they are using an encrypted end-to-end encryption uh, protocol. Um, so you know, it's it's not hard to find these days, uh, and uh, so you don't necessarily need to go to some fancy cryptography company to encrypt your communications anymore. No, but back in the day, you did, and this was you know serious military intelligence equipment. Um, anyway, we're not going to spend any more time on it, but I just found this to be one of the most fascinating stories I've read in years. Um, so let's talk the other kind of crypto. And Victor was telling me before the show that some people, when they talk about cryptocurrency, they use the term crypto, but people talking about cryptography don't like that they do that. And that's all kind of confusing. Um, there's a lot of terminology that people try to own, don't they? Yeah, well, you know, cryptocurrency is inextricably linked with cryptography, right? Because that's how you are securing, here's what this, here's what I've got, and then here's what the the ledger says, the bank ledger, if you will, right? And uh, as a matter of fact, people will be shocked to understand that all of the transactions, for instance, on Bitcoin, which pretty much everyone hopefully has at least heard of Bitcoin, um, certainly that was the first real proof of concept that worked, using blockchain as this sort of decentralized finance thing, which I'm throwing out a lot of terms. We'll talk about that in just a second. But just Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. get you down the right path but, after your intro but here. You know, but when we think about this, uh, the ledger, imagine if you walked into the bank and every transaction that had been done at that bank was on a, a book that you could go and you could flip through in the main lobby. But here's the thing. There's no personal information in any of that. What you would see would be hashes, that represent all of the transactions that are happening. And so that's the public part of that. Then you have a private key that would unlock your transactions and the, and the details about your transactions. So that is fundamentally what we're talking about. When we talk about Bitcoin, if you want to think about that sort of concept that you've got this book and everyone can go and look at it, um, that's, that's kind of like the original concept there, as opposed to it actually living in a bank in a central place, that book actually exists on, say, hundreds, maybe thousands of computers across the world. Uh, and then every time somebody wants to write something to that ledger, there's a whole process that's enabled that not only rewards coins, but, you know, it takes a lot of effort to, to actually do something that with. But that's that's the general idea. That's Bitcoin. Okay, so let's let's get into the basic technology behind this called blockchain. Um, and what you were just explaining is that multiple computers are involved in this. It's a sort of a peer-to-peer system in some ways, it isn't is. it? It is. Um, where they share information and they make calculations and compare them to each other. Um, I know you want to explain this and take an hour and a half to do it, but can you give me a, a 30, a 60 second explanation of blockchain. Yeah, well, blockchain is blockchain is really that record. It is, you know, if you think about a block of information, that's that block of information could have anything, right? Uh, in, in supply chain management, this is really popular because you could say at row this on farm this, we're growing this particular piece of lettuce. Okay. And that block, as you add more things to it, is verified 
And so that then becomes a chain of blocks. So you add one more record, that adds one more block that also includes everything else prior to it. So a big part of blockchain that particularly supply chain uh, management enthusiasts are (laughs) excited about is the fact that it verifies the data over and over and over again, which again is important if you are doing financial transactions, you want to make sure that those are verified over and over and over again. So that's the block and the chain. So did blockchain technology exist and was it used for things other than cryptocurrency initially? And then cryptocurrency was piggybacked on top of it? Is that what happened? Yeah, the earliest references to blockchain as a, as a tech are from the 90s. Um, and Bitcoin didn't go online until 2009. Um, so it definitely built on that. And there were other you know, uses and, and other attempts and this kind of thing. But Bitcoin was really the first one that actually worked the way it should work. How is blockchain different than a, a database? Uh, well, you know, with a database, typically, even if you're in the cloud, there is a uh, there's a set, you know, this is what the data is, right? And you have all sorts of rules and permissions around who can write to that and all that. But all of that typically is ma- uh, managed centrally by somebody who says, here's what these permissions are, here's the, and, we, and we verify this data, and, you know, all of this is very much a centralized thing. With blockchain, you can have all of this be done decentralized, meaning no one particular server. And, and again, anybody who's familiar with the topology of the internet knows what I'm talking about. You don't have everything all in one place. You have it distributed uh, around the world. So that's the central thing is that <laughs> the decentralizing thing. Um, that's what advocates of both blockchain and cryptocurrency say is the inherent advantage is this decentralized nature. Okay, we're going to have an article that you've written on the Intego Max Security blog, um, but let's just try and get a framework for this. So you've got blockchain that's running on a lot of computers that apparently uses a great deal of electricity, and this is in order to perform some sort of calculation to verify transactions, to verify records and accounts. But what happens if it breaks? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's a question of what's going to break, right? Uh, to, to give you an example, Bitcoin you're talking about, and this is sort of the crazy thing. People say, what is a miner, M-I-N-E-R? So how do you get coins? Well, you're mining coins, right? And this is the the sort of gold rush mentality. People were building server farms. They were doing all this kind of, well, what the heck does that mean? To, to create a coin you have to solve cryptographic puzzles. These puzzles are created through the hashes, basically, of the transactions that are being applied. And and what all this means is, is that you are rewarded if you prove that a transaction is either thumbs up or thumbs down. You have to solve, so say someone wants to buy a Bitcoin, a bunch of computers race to try to solve whether that was actually the right person, because remember, they've got their private key that's unlocking this and saying, hey, yeah, this is me. So if you solve these puzzles, and, and again, it's it's a little bit weird to think about this, but if you solve these puzzles first, you're rewarded with Bitcoin. And okay. that's the incentive uh, for people to verify the data. Remember, we're verifying each block of data and all the ones that came before it. So that's what we have to do. And every time a new transaction is loaded in there, we have to verify it solve those puzzles, and then we have to verify everything else in addition to that. That's why it takes up so much energy. 
And you point out in your article the fact, and you mentioned earlier, that this is distributed, not centralized. And me being a skeptic and not trusting things like this, um, my thought is that let's say I put my money into some Bitcoin and somehow it disappears. Who do I complain to? There's no bank manager. There's no FDIC in the States or insurance in other countries. So I could put all my money there and it could just go poof and I could what would happen? Well, decentralized finance uh, advocates will tell you that don't use it if you can't lose it, right? And that's true of all investing. You know, I mean, we, we tomorrow, mad cow disease could merge with coronavirus and no one can eat beef anymore, right? So if you bought beef But futures, I can still... No, but I can still have my bank account insured here for 85,000 pounds. That's right. And, and again, that is that is sort of the argument that uh, critics of decentralized finance are making, which is that there is no central authority. So yeah, if and if you look through the news articles about cryptocurrency, you see that there have been hacks, there's been thefts. And what they do is they have a hard fork and they say, okay, well, that presented this reality. Now the real reality is over on this other. And so they basically create a clone of the network so that they can go forward minus the hack. But that data can't be unwritten. They don't actually say, oh, no, 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 that was, that was all fake. They just say this is like an alternate reality. Well, not to mention there are actually some other challenges too that, that go beyond someone trying to uh, sort of take over the blockchain, right? Um, there's also uh, issues, you know, related to this whole idea of, you know, there's no federal insurance or anything like that. Um, people, this is why people are trying to steal people's Bitcoin wallets. There's actual cryptocurrency stealer malware that will look in the normal places that you might find a wallet on somebody's computer and try to take that away from them and send it off to whoever wrote this malware. And with the idea being, guess what? You're out of luck. You know, once they've stolen that, you can't get it back. I mean, it, you could look at it almost like a physical wallet because now you just don't have access to it anymore. Except that you have no recourse, like Kirk was saying. You have, you have nowhere to go to to say, hey, they took my wallet. You know, at least you can call your bank. You can cancel your cards. You can get some sort of protection. But with these wallets... You know, and, and that is something that someone could differentiate themselves with as a service and say, well, if your wallet is ever stolen, we'll protect X amount or whatever. But again, that is not built into the system whatsoever. And the other issue that came up for me is, let's imagine that I'm getting paid for my work in Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Um, given the volatility of Bitcoin, between the time I send an invoice and I get my payment, um, it may be worth half as much, maybe worth twice as much, but it may be worth half as much. Let's say I take out a mortgage on a house and I'm paying $500 a month for the mortgage, but since it's in Bitcoin and Bitcoin's value has changed uh, in relation to the dollar, then the next month I have to pay $1,000. You can't run an economy on something that unstable. Yeah, well, and that is definitely one of the biggest concerns right now. But Part of that is also because uh, there's not a lot of people, if you look at the t sum total of people who are participating in all of this decentralized finance economy, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to what's established, right? I mean, the, let's not kid ourselves. This is very much a tiny, tiny, tiny drop of water, and it's an experiment with a lot of people that are involved. The other thing is that because you have... Uh, 
well, because you have one dominant player that all of these other coins are linked to, Bitcoin, in other words, as it goes up, most of these other coins go up. Um, everything's very over-collateralized. So there's a lot of money in there, but if one or two people pull out a lot of that money, everything else kind of falls apart. So we're, we're in sort of like the pre-FDIC days of banking before we had a lot of protections and controls. Uh, and so that's what we're seeing right now is it's still an experiment and there's still not a lot of people participating. So right now, it sounds like it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme, but I can imagine that banks are looking at this technology as, as a way of making their, their financial back office work more efficient in the future. And there's no reason why a bank couldn't use this actual technology and yet work in exactly the same way that they are facing users. In other words, a user wouldn't have the whole um, ledger on their computer, but the banks would have a series of computers that could do this. Is that correct? That's right. And a lot of banks are looking at blockchain and cryptocurrency as this sort of like third rail where they can do transactions and you can do them uh, in a decentralized way, but then you can settle back on the central authority to sort of double verify that data, right? So these hybrid systems are actually uh, solving a lot of the problems we see with transaction speeds because you can't wait two hours. If you're standing at a store and you want to use your Bitcoin to pay for groceries, you can't wait two hours for the public chain to settle all the you know, previous transactions and then you can walk out with your groceries, right? Since you're talking about grocery stores, uh, I actually did notice at my local grocery store the other day that I could go to a kiosk and buy Bitcoin with with my U.S. currency. I'm like, oh, really? In a grocery store of all places? That's so <laughs> bizarre. Do, do you get a little coin that comes out at the bottom <laughs> if you've paid? Uh, I mean, maybe it's just a scam. Yeah, well, <laughs> officially there there's no... Uh, actual physical uh, currency when it comes to this cryptocurrency stuff. Um, although there are some some people who have made some very fancy coins that uh, you can have imbued with cryptocurrency or something. <laughs> but um, anyway, that's a whole other story. Just to close, it's kind of interesting what you said about the immediacy of things here. I lived in France for a long time, and whenever I transferred money from one account to another, at its fastest, it would be credited the following day. Here in the UK, I can transfer money from one account to another. It's credited immediately. I don't know how that is in the States right now, but it's not like blockchain would make things any faster than the current system here. Well, and you know, there's a, there's a whole discussion right now around where that money flows and who, every time somebody holds money for even a fraction of a second, they can make money on that money, right? This is a- It's called the VIG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, but, you know, this is becoming a, a, I just saw today people talking about, well, when you work, you know, your, your boss pays you every two weeks, they're holding that money and they could do something with that money. They could be investing that money and making money on your money while you're getting, waiting to get your money, right? So this gets in a whole money theory and, and flow and all this kind of thing that is way beyond uh, certainly my realm of expertise. But it is really, really fascinating to see people playing with this. And and like Josh said, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not probably not going to pay for my groceries with Bitcoin. But the fact that this is starting to permeate and percolate means that it's, it's an interesting, you know, experiment. Again, it's an experiment of this 
What if we didn't need to have a central authority to do things? And that was, you know, one of the basic premises of the internet as well. What if we don't need a room with a univac in here doing all of these things? And we see how that works out. <laughs> Victor, thanks very much. Um, again, link to Victor's article in the show notes. Um, Josh, uh, maybe you should go to your grocery store later and buy a couple dollars worth of Bitcoin and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be kind of a, a fun experiment, yeah. Okay. Um, we'll be talking more about cryptocurrency in the coming weeks. We may have a guest who's going to discuss this with us. Uh, Josh, until next week, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>